I'll be reading from Acts 2, verse 41 to 43, as well as from Romans 6, 1 to 8. I'll be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. So Acts 2, 41 to 43. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now I'll read from Romans 6. Verse 1 to 8. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. God's word. Thanks be to God. So it's always interesting that when I sit back and listen to Brian or somebody else read the scriptures, uh, new things come to mind um, in addition to the preparation time because God's word truly is a tremendous um, word. It's got power. It brings blessing to us in our lives, and every time we listen and every time we hear what is being said, we are just so grateful. So, Brian, thank you for reading so well. So the section uh, of the Acts that we're looking at today is really bringing us to this final point that this incredible thing happened. 3,000 people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We would love to see that happen here in Norwich. Uh, We would love to see our church full in that way, in in that sense. And we do what we do because God leads us to do what we are doing. And there in that section of Scripture, as Brian had spoken together, we see the two ordinances that were given to us um, by the Lord Jesus and which is uh, remembered in the church today. And, of course, we know what those two ordinances are. As I say, they're in the section of Scripture. The 3,000 people, when they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're immediately baptized and, uh, and then we're told that they met together and they broke bread. So there we have the two ordinances, which is baptism and, of course, Lord's Supper. An ordinance, uh, by definition, is an outward physical act that portrays a spiritual experience that is taking place within our hearts, perhaps corporately, together as a fellowship of God's people. But that's what an ordinance is, and that's what uh, we rejoice with the two ordinances that have been brought to us in, uh, in our uh, fellowship and churches today. Now, what do these two ordinances have in common is a very reasonable question to ask. 
Um, Both, of course, focus when we look at them and think very clearly. They focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and, in particular, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So there is that commonality, that link that we have between the two. Now, the act of baptism whereby somebody goes down into the water. And I just want to say, if uh, you're sort of new and you're wondering, this box here is our baptistry. It is not, as somebody thought from the building department in the township, the high altar at the Baptist church. We don't have one of those, but we do have a baptistry. And uh, when Chris Crocker came, he looked and he said, wow, that's a smart baptistry. And I thought, okay, we've made a a good impact um, uh, here uh, for for Chris Crocker when he uh, came. So the act of being baptized is where somebody goes down into the water. And of course, this is a picture of them dying, dying with Christ. They're buried under the water. So when we place them under the water, they're buried. We don't leave them there for very long, just literally a couple of seconds, if that. And then, of course, they're raised to life again. So what we have clearly before us is a picture of what Christ has done. And this is why... Uh, we discover that baptism is very important and its emphasis is there. The moment these people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are baptized and then we see them breaking bread. Now, breaking of bread involves taking a piece of bread as we do on the first Sunday of each month and other times if we choose to do so, if the Lord leads us to do so, because there are times even when I go out and I visit people and we will share Lord's Supper, breaking of bread together Maybe someone hasn't been able to come to the the church for a while, and it's good to be able to do that. That's part and parcel of the ministry that we have. The bread is uh, broken, and uh, the wine is drunk, and it's a representation of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken for us, and his blood, precious blood, shed for us. So both of these ordinances go back to the focus that lies at the very heart of, of the Christian gospel, which is that something, something happened at the cross. Something happened at Calvary. Something happened at the cross of Jesus Christ that is absolutely vital and it's absolutely central to the gospel and to the Christian message. And you cannot be part of the Christian church without recognizing the centrality of the cross, without recognizing all that took place on the cross, and also without recognizing the personal application of that and the implication of that to you and to me this morning. Friends, if you don't understand this vital message, then you'll never be able to enter into or to enjoy the Christian life that is ours to enjoy. And I use that word specifically and deliberately because the Christian life is not a life of hardship. The Christian life is a life of joy. Now, sometimes when I meet people, even when I look at faces in the morning, I think to myself, is it a hardship to know that you've been saved from your sin? That you have heaven waiting for you? That your citizenship has been transferred from this world, this earth of pain, and sin, and you've, been, you, you, you've had your passport changed. It's been issued from heaven. And it's a tremendous joy to be able to understand that. And that, of course, leads to many, many different things. But if you don't understand the cross of Christ, you'll never be able to enter into 
all of these things to that relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, baptism takes place, according to the Scriptures, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only example that we see. It represents that as a believer, we are united with Christ. And in doing so, we are united with His death, burial, and resurrection. Lord's Supper is uh, repeated frequently because it reminds us of our need, our ongoing cleansing, and our ongoing renewal of our communion with God. And that's where these two uh, ordinances differ to some extent. But they both focus on the fact that the gospel is primarily about our reconciliation with God. We have to be reconciled to God. And essentially the gospel is about human beings who are in a state of total separation from God, being miraculously through the power of the resurrection, being reconciled to the God of the universe. And as Chris Crocker made that point, do you want the God of the universe opposing you? Because if you don't come to faith in him, if you don't trust in his son, who he has graciously and mercifully sent to us, he opposes you. Now you might think that doesn't sound right, but that is the reality. That is the truth of the situation. I'm so grateful that the God of the universe doesn't oppose me because of what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's exciting. God, by his Holy Spirit, lives within us to produce character or to reproduce character and holiness of God within us. Now, in our fellowship, we baptize people, you know, relatively regularly, two or three times a year, if not more. And it's been exciting to be able to do that. And uh, it looks as though we will be having another service of believers' baptism before too long. And so I would say at the beginning of the message that we have here, listen carefully, please. Perhaps maybe you need to be thinking about baptism. Perhaps now's the time. You've been saved for decades. But you'd never been obedient. And to show that change that has taken place in your heart and in your life by your baptism as commanded within the Scriptures. So, Usually our baptismal services take place on a Sunday morning and we always rejoice in those services. Uh, perhaps you've never witnessed one of those uh, services here yet. Well, as I said, I hope and pray that soon you'll be able to do so. It may be that some of you have not been baptized as a believer and for a variety of reasons. But I want to say to you is that you can't read the New Testament without coming face to face with baptism and the fact that it is an important part, an important ingredient in the Christian life. You can't escape that. Baptism is mentioned in 11 of the New Testament books. And in the book of Acts, the book that we're studying, here it is, we discover 3,000 people come to faith in the Lord Jesus and they're baptized. And of course, there are nine separate accounts of people being baptized in the book of Acts alone. The book of Acts is a record of the early church, and there it is. Baptism is important. And we notice immediately that all the accounts of baptism took place instantaneously. Now, it's a little bit of a, um, a bugbear of mine, is that uh, sometimes we seem to say to people, look, you've got to wait. What have they got to wait for? 
I think it's more a case of our satisfaction that we say things like this. At the end of the day, if someone has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Scriptures say, and I think the longest time between someone coming to faith and being baptized is three days. And we get the idea that people should wait months, maybe years, just so that we can make sure they're saved. Don't put a foot wrong. That's not what this is about. The Holy Spirit showed this by being baptized in the manner prescribed in the Scriptures, which, of course, is full immersion in water. There's not one example of anyone being made to wait a month or a year or five years. Nor is there any example in the Scriptures of someone being baptized before they're ready to be baptized. The Scriptures say, repent and be baptized. And it says that in every occasion. But maybe there are good reasons that we allow people to wait for just a little while. But sadly, the main reason that so many people neglect to be baptized is exactly that. They neglect to follow the Scripture. They struggle with obedience. And it's a sad case when I talk to people and suddenly I'll say, well, have you been baptized? Do you recognize what that means? And they will say no. Friends, I say this graciously and I say this gently, but I have to say it. To not be baptized as a believer in the manner prescribed and specified in Scripture is an act of disobedience. Now, you would say, well, I'd expect him to say that. This is a Baptist church. But I just want to encourage you to read the Scriptures. And during this week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this subject properly. The great commission that our Lord Jesus Christ gave as he ascended back into heaven. In fact, in several different forms in the different Gospels. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Mark 16, 15, he said, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creatures. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so to not be baptized is negligence and is disobedience. And it's negligent on the part of the church as well. Now in our baptism, there are three expressions taking place. And baptism of believers by full immersion is the only option. And of course, it is the only option because all that is spoken and described of in scriptures shows this. And as we look at baptism, we discover that there is dying with Christ. That is going down into the water. We have died with Christ, the scriptures, as uh, Brian has read to us, explain. And then we have been buried with him, symbolized by being under the water. And then we have been raised to life in Christ Jesus, symbolized by coming up out of the water. And these are all contained in the picture that we have. 
And so today, what I want to do is to talk about dying with Christ. Now, we talk about Christ dying for us, but how often do we actually understand what the Scriptures are saying when it talks about us dying with Christ? This has been a tremendous challenge for me as I've been preparing this message. And next week, I want to talk about being buried with Christ. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I thought to myself, do you know what? I've never, ever in my entire life heard a message on being buried with Christ. Maybe you have. If you have, can you give me some tips? Because I'm thinking about next week already, and we need to begin to start, uh, to start thinking about this. Uh, but I've, 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 I believe there is an imperative as we begin to look at that. And then the following week, we're going to talk about being raised to Christ, and we're going to talk about baptism, us as individuals. But today, we're going to be talking about dying with Christ. What does it mean? Well, it's actually essential that we first understand this expression in baptism. If we're going to understand anything about the Christian life, we have to. You see, I cannot talk about baptism without explaining the gospel, because baptism, of course, is a, is a picture of the gospel. And I think, again, that's one of the most exciting things about it. Because every time we look at baptism, every time we see someone being baptized, we see what Christ has done for us. And we recognize that not only have we seen what Christ has done for us, but what he's done for us has happened in our hearts and in our lives. And the first thing is, I died with Christ. Now, if you know that you're not saved this morning, if you know that you've not yet got that relationship with Christ, I'm grateful that you're here. And I want to ask you in particular, but everybody, to listen carefully as we talk, yes, particularly about the gospel, because we have to show this link between the gospel, between baptism and what we're seeing. But I want to ask you to listen carefully, not just with your ears, but your heart. I don't want you just to hear words. I want you to hear the message and to unblock your heart, to clear out the stuff that so often is there. Whatever it is you're thinking of at the moment, stop it. And now listen to the message that we have. Don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen anyway, you know. Nothing you can do to stop it. So now, let's listen. And let's talk about this. I plan to use two illustrations to help us to actually understand exactly what it is that God wants us to see and to hear from this first part of this message on baptism that we're looking at. And I'm going to begin by quoting um, from uh, a verse in Ephesians. And immediately you might be tempted to think to yourself, well, there he is, he's, he's confusing the issue again. But it's important that we hear this, this, this verse. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, and, and somebody has quoted this as to why they shouldn't be baptized. And I found, this is to me personally, and I found that fascinating. If you're here this morning, you'll probably remember as soon as I quote the verse, but it was fascinating. And it's this verse. It says, there is one Lord, there's one faith, and there's one baptism. But when you read the New Testament, you soon realize that there are, in fact, two baptisms. And you're beginning to think to yourself, now this is confusing. Is the Bible contradicting itself? What is it I don't get? Paul says there is only one baptism. So what is right? One or two? 
Well, the answer, as far as I can determine, and I've prayed and sought the Lord on this, is very clear. That baptism in water is a picture of baptism by the Holy Spirit. Because those are the two baptisms that are mentioned. Baptism in water, baptism by or in the Holy Spirit. I want to keep it simple. But this point is important. Because there are, again, some people here this morning who have said, well, of course, baptism in the Spirit means there is no need for water baptism. So we can negate that little exercise, can't we? But we can't. Because inextricably, the two are bound together. And we see this as we read and as we study the Scriptures. But as I say, we want to keep it simple. So we continue to try and do that. Baptism in water is a picture of baptism in the Holy Spirit. The phrase baptism with or by the Holy Spirit occurs only seven times in the entire New Testament. And five of the seven all happen at the beginning of Acts, talking about uh, Pentecost. And they're referring to the day of Pentecost. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, was the great inauguration of the new church era, when the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell in people. And then there's the reference to the man called Cornelius. Now, why was Cornelius an interesting character? What was special about Cornelius? I think in Acts 7 or so. What was, can anyone call out or shout out? He was, he was the first of the Gentiles to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to come and to see what was taking place. So that's the next one. He was a Gentile convert. And it was spoken of him as being baptized with the Holy Spirit. But none of them explain what it really means. And then we come to the seventh reference, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul explains it and he says this, We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So now we see an explanation And the one body into which we are baptized by the Spirit, we read from the context, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, as Romans 6 tells us, we are baptized into Christ. And so the first question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, have you been baptized into Christ? If you don't know what this means, if it sounds alien, if it sounds frightening, if it sounds scary to you, then you haven't understood. What that means is that you are now united with Christ. Paul says it in such a way that your union with Christ means that what is true of Christ becomes true of you. Brian read from Romans chapter 6. And of course we know that Romans chapter 6 follows Romans chapter 5. And if we read Romans chapter 5, it talks about Christ died for me. Romans chapter 6 talks about I died with Christ. So we've got these two things that are presented. Chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now we have to understand chapter 5 if we're going to understand chapter 6. What does it mean Christ died for me? Romans 5 
verse 6, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. What does it mean that Christ died for me? Why did Christ die for me? Well, there are two things in the character of God that make the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely vital and absolutely necessary. And these two things are firstly, that God is a just God. And secondly, that God is a merciful God. God is a just God. God is a merciful God. But when you stop to think about it for a moment, and just do that, just for a moment, do you realize that those two things are incompatible with each other? Have you ever understood that? They're incompatible as we have spoken of them and explained them just in those few moments. Why? Because to be just means you give people what they deserve. That's what being just is. Just means tip for tap. Okay? Mercy, however, means that you don't give people what they deserve. Because you're being merciful to them. So do you see the polar opposites that we have? God's justice, you give people what they deserve. Mercy means you don't give people what they deserve. And yet here they are. Together. There's only one way to answer this question. And I'm going to give you a very inadequate but simple illustration. And I'm sure you've all heard it before. Uh, sadly, there is uh, a relatively strong element of, uh, of personal experience from this uh, particular example. I would prefer not to have to confess everything. I think I may have done so before in front of everybody. But it involves driving on the 59 through Norwich. And just imagine you're doing 100 kilometers an hour down the 59. Yes, it might be late at night. The road is empty. And as you're going along, suddenly you notice in the distance behind you, and then you look again, and it's very close to you, a car speeding towards you. The thing that makes you notice it is the light flashing on its roof. The police officer pulls you over and he says to you, do you realize how fast you were going? Now you can have two options. You can say, well, absolutely no idea, officer. <laughs> or you can be honest. I was doing about 100 kilometers an hour. Do you realize that you're breaking the law? And you do. Because you live in Norwich and you've been complaining on Facebook about all the people who drive too fast. But you thought you'd get away with it. Yeah, I, I, I guess I do, officer. And then you receive a summons to appear in court and you stand before the magistrate and he says, you've broken the law. Yeah, I, I'm, I realize it. I, I'm going to fine you $1,000 because driving 100 kilometers through a village like Norwich is not a good thing to do. 
And you hear the sum and you think to yourself, no way. A thousand dollars. But I can't afford it. You're concerned and you're worried and you're thinking, what are we going to eat for the next month? And then a friend comes along and says, how much was the fine? A thousand dollars. And he says, I've got my checkbook with me. And he writes a check to the court and he hands it over to the clerk of the court and the clerk says, fine, $1,000, and stamps the word paid beside it. You see, when I walk out of the court, I am the recipient of mercy. I haven't paid a penny. But as far as the court is concerned, justice has been done. Because the magistrate was just. And the third party had stepped into the situation and he addressed and he satisfied the justice of the court and in so doing mediated to me mercy. Now on the occasion that I had a spot of bother with the constabulary locally, nobody stepped in. I had to negotiate. Now, as I say, it's, in, 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 quite in, it's inadequate in a great many ways to illustrate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it illustrates a number of points. It illustrates that the soul that sins shall die. And under the justice of God, nobody in this tent this morning, nobody has any hope. Have you understood that? Not one of us because of the justice of God, has any hope. Because justice gives us what we deserve. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person here who is not a sinner. But Jesus Christ, who is sinless himself and Therefore, as a man, he has no sin that needs to be atoned for. He stood in my place. He had addressed the just wrath of God. And he satisfied the just wrath of God. And as a result of that, you and I may be the recipients of mercy. And we may be forgiven. But our forgiveness is not because God says, okay, I'll let you off. I'll be kind. I'll be kind to you. You see, we wouldn't need the cross if God exercised this prerogative. But he can't exercise that prerogative because he is a just God. And I assure you, my friends, you only want a just God. You see, justice had to be met. 
When you and I come and confess our sin to God and are seeking his forgiveness, do we appeal to his justice or do we appeal to his mercy? Now, if you remember when Charles Price came and he asked that question, he said, put your hand up if you're going for mercy. And I think 99% of the congregation, including myself, put my hand up for mercy. But that's not what we depend upon when we appeal to God. We have to appeal to his justice. Now, it's very important that we understand this. Do you know the verse in 1 John 1, verse 9? If you come to the Bible study, you will do. The verse says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just. Not merciful. He is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, it is on the basis of justice that God forgives us, not on the basis of mercy. Now, of course, God is merciful. His mercy was demonstrated in the fact that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his mercy. And his son acted as a substitute in our place. Because Jesus Christ has satisfied the justice of God, the fantastic consequences of that is that we are forgiven on the basis of God's justice. In other words, and if I may put that in these terms, and I had to think long and hard about this, but wait for it, hear me out. That means that legally and morally, God is obligated to forgive us. Isn't that incredible? He is obligated to forgive us because Christ has satisfied the just requirement of our sin. Now, why is this so important? Because if you appeal to the mercy of God as the grounds of your forgiveness, you are likely to get tempted after a while and you will say something like this. Maybe I've sinned too many times. And I keep asking for forgiveness. I've asked for forgiveness five times, 50 times, 500 times, 5,000 times. And you suddenly think to yourself, he can't forgive me anymore. I've gone too far. Surely he's not going to forgive me again. If you appeal to his mercy, you appeal to God's whim. And you'll have doubts. And others will have doubts. But if you appeal to his justice, you may be certain of your forgiveness. So here's the second illustration, and we're going to come back to the first one in a moment. So let me illustrate this again. Supposing you're on your way home and you call in at Timmy's for a cup of coffee. You're desperate. You need that cup of coffee. I meet people here in Canada who, it's like, you know, it's the only way they're going to survive to get through the day is if they go to Timmy's, you know. And I do have to say, Timmy's do a decent cup of tea as well, so I, 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 need, to, I need to give uh, um, praise where it's due. You're on your way home and you're desperate for that coffee and you go up to the counter and you say, I want a large coffee. And I don't know if Rachel's here this morning, but Rachel uh, who comes to church, she, there she is, she, she works at Timmy's. Okay? 
Now, I, I don't want you to get into trouble from this one, Rachel, so, so, so go careful. But you go up to Rachel, she's at the counter, and you say, I'm desperate for a cup of coffee. And as she brings the coffee to you, you say to her, well, you'll never guess this, but I've left my wallet at home. <laughs> I haven't got any money. I'm sorry. Could you give me the cup of coffee? <laughs> now, my problem with this illustration using Rachel is she'd probably say yes. <laughs> okay. And Rachel says, well, I can't just give you a cup of coffee. This is a business. We've got to make money. We've got to pay the bills. Just pay me $3. Yeah, but I don't have any money. Rach, just give me the coffee. And Rachel says, I can't just give you the coffee. I mean, how often do you throw the coffee out, I say to her? Every day, every 20 minutes, you make a new pot and you must throw it out. You're not going to go bankrupt giving me a coffee, are you? Please, Rach, just give me a coffee. And Rachel replies, I can't just give you a coffee. Yes, you can. Oh, all right. Here you are. Take your coffee. But don't tell anyone. Next week, you're on your way home, and you're desperate for a cup of coffee. You go into Timmy's. You go up to the counter. Rachel's trying to hide because she sees you coming and she remembers what happened last week. But she can't get away quick enough. And she said, get out of here. I don't want to see you again. Why does she speak like that? Because you were appealing to Rachel's kindness. You were appealing to her mercy. But just supposing I knew that you were going to go in to buy that coffee. And I went in first. And I said, look, Rachel, every Wednesday evening, this guy comes in. Here's $100. Stick it under the till or something. And every time he comes in, give him his coffee. And you come back in the following week. And you go up to Rachel and I and say, I, I want a coffee. And Rachel says, that's fine. No problem. We'll make it a large, shall we? I forgot to bring any money. It's no problem at all. Here you are. Here's your coffee. And you come back the following week, and you go up to Rachel, and you say, can I have a coffee? And she says, absolutely no problem. In fact, why don't you add a donut to it this week? Treat yourself. And you get a coffee and you get a donut. What's the difference? The difference is that you're no longer appealing to Rachel's kindness, to her mercy. But you're appealing to her justice. Because there's money in the till. And she knows there's money in the till. Now, I don't want in any way to cheapen what I mean and what it means to be forgiven. But God forgives you not because he's kind, though he is. Not because he's merciful, though he is. He forgives you because he's just, 
He forgives you because there is money in the till. And what is that money? It's the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed, says Peter, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the precious blood of Christ Jesus. That is the currency on which we are forgiven. Now, you're going to go away and say, well, that actually sounds like I can just go on sinning, doesn't it? And then come back and be forgiven again and again. And you might find this strange, but I want to say this to you. If that's how you see what is being presented here, then the reality is this. You have understood the gospel. Now, you've made a mistake, but you have understood the gospel. Because that is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 6 verse 1. In the light of the fact that Christ died for me, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? Is this permission to go on sinning so that grace may abound because God continually gives me what I don't deserve? But which has justly been obtained through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul answers the question and he says, by no means, and this is why. Are you ready? Because we died in Christ. Now that's the difference. That's what helps us to understand. Not only did Christ die for me, but I died with Christ. But what does that mean? Have we understood it? I died in Christ. Well, Romans 6 is full of it. Verse 2, we died to sin. Verse 3, don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? Were baptized what? Into his death. We were therefore buried with him through, uh, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through, uh, uh, through into his death. Verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin. When the question is raised, can we carry on sinning because grace is available, forgiveness is available? No, he says, because it isn't just that Christ has died for you. It is also because you have died with Christ. And in so doing, you died to sin. This means that what happened to Christ on the cross is deemed to have happened to you and to me. Have you understood that? Don't you know, he says in verse 3, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death. That is that you are united with Christ in his death. Friends, it is as if you have died. And that's why baptism by full immersion comes into play because it reminds us of everything that happened to Jesus, has happened to us. We have stood in the place that Jesus has stood in. We have experienced it because we died with him. It's as though, and I say this graciously, you paid the price, but in the person of a substitute. 
Now, we go back to the court of law that we illustrated earlier, the magistrate's court, and being fined $1,000. If I go back and say, you know, I feel my conscience is a bit disturbed because I didn't pay a penny, nothing. And you go up to the clerk, the court clerk, and you say, could I give a donation of $50 just to make me feel better? And the clerk says, no, you can't. And he looks up the record and it says, fine, $1,000. It says, paid, $1,000. And he looks at you and he says, you have paid. Well, I didn't pay that. I don't care who paid it. As far as the court is concerned, you have paid it. If you add $50, the books won't balance. It won't work. It's paid. And so the record says, Simorum, crime speeding, guilty, fined $1,000, paid. Now what about our sin? It's paid in the person of a substitute who gave the money, if you like, on our behalf. I have paid. I am free because I have been crucified with Christ. And it's interesting that in Romans 6, Paul says of these issues, he says, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know. In other words, have you not grasped this? Is this why your Christian life is fumbling around and is weak and is failing? Because you haven't understood this. That in the reckoning of God, you have been united in Jesus Christ. When Simorum was crucified with Christ on the cross, when you know that, you start to spell the Christian life differently, don't you? Because there are two ways of spelling the Christian life. The first one is very short and very simple, and it's just simply this. D-O, the word do. Do, 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 do. What do you have to do? I'm asked that question so often by people. What do you have to do, pastor? The other way of spelling the Christian life is D-O-N-E, done. It's not what we do. It is what Christ has done. And I have become united with him, and therefore it has been done. I read carefully verse 9. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. And neither can you, neither can I. Death no longer has mastery over him, nor does it have by implication on us. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. And so did you. You don't keep dying to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so must you. In the same way, you've got to count yourself dead. Same as what? The same way as Christ died. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. 
In preparation for this message, I was reading an account of a church where a young woman came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a tremendous account of her conversion. She had come from a very difficult background. Things were not easy for her. She had a history, a history that was well known in the community. Just say at the moment, there's nobody I know, I don't know uh, all the details on this, but it is an account that was written, uh, as I say, uh, in a magazine that I was preparing for this uh, sermon, this message. And her history was immorality and sin. But she came to faith in Jesus. She was saved. And as should happen when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become enthusiastic about our faith because we're taken from the darkness where we can't see ahead in any way and we're brought into the wonderful light of the Lord Jesus Christ and the light fills our hearts and so she's enthusiastic and there's this enthusiasm that fills her soul. She gets involved in the ministry of the church. She wants to see people brought to the Savior. And at a church business or fellowship meeting on one occasion, somebody raised the question of the fact that the woman involved in the ministry of the church had a background, had a history. And the man said, this woman has a reputation that is known in our community. I'm not sure it's good that she is in a position like this in our church. And somebody else spoke up. And said, yes, that's right. You know how church meetings go, don't you? One person leads the pack and off it goes. She shouldn't be allowed to do this. And a lively discussion ensues. And then a wise man stands up. And he said, what is on trial here is not this woman and her past. What is on trial here is the very blood of Jesus Christ. And he asked the congregation, is his blood sufficient to cleanse her? And when you and I feel condemnation, sometimes self-accusation, sometimes a feeling of dirt, sometimes a sense of loathfulness as we look at our own lives and we think of the past that we have lived, And the times when we have walked away from God and we've turned our back on Him. And perhaps many of us here this morning can relate to that. What is on trial in your mind is not you. It's the precious blood of Jesus. And the question you have to ask is, is his blood sufficient to deal with my sin? What does it mean to be justified? It means that the case is over, the case is closed. It means that we were crucified with Christ. It means that the old life is finished. And that's why the devil has no grounds to enter his favorite pastime, which is accusing us. 
And that is why next week we're going to talk about the fact that not only are we crucified with Christ, but we're buried with him. You see, everything that warranted death, all my sin has not only been crucified, but it's been taken and it's been buried. And if you don't bury your sin, it will haunt you for the rest of your life. And that's why we've got to talk about being buried with Christ. Because it's gone. It's been taken away. It's been cleansed. It's been forgiven. You know what? It's only people in churches that remember other people's sin. God doesn't. He chooses not to. And so next week, we look at being buried with Christ. Baptism of the believer by full immersion is the picture of everything we're speaking of here. And the reason why water baptism is given to us is to ensure that we understand all of this and that others know that we have died with Christ, that we've been buried with him, that we have been washed clean. It's not the water that washes us clean. It's the fact that we've, been, that we've died and been buried and been raised to life again. When I married Joe. I gave her a ring. And as I slid it on her finger, I said, with this ring, I thee wed. Now, she could have thought to herself, oh, is that it? Just this ring. That's all he weds me with. You see, the ring is but a symbol. A symbol of marriage. It shows Joe my love. But it also tells everybody else that she is mine. And to be honest, chaps, she's gorgeous. And I love her. But she's got my ring on her finger to keep away. It tells everybody that she's mine. Baptism in water doesn't unite you with Christ. What it does, though, is reminds you and everybody else that you belong to Christ. It is a symbol of our being united with Jesus Christ. We gave Emma a ring for her 18th birthday. We went to the shop and we chose it. But if Emma wanted to fool people and give the impression she was married, she could have chosen a wedding band and put it on her ring finger. And some might have been taken in by it. But there was no legal precedent. It was just a symbol. It was just a piece of jewelry. You see, you can be baptized by full immersion in this tank. But if you're not saved, your baptism is simply a piece of spiritual jewelry. It means nothing. There's no legal standing. There's no justification. 
But if you've been brought into that relationship with Jesus Christ through his blood being shed and you being washed of your sins, then scripture seems to make it very clear that this is not just between you and God. It's between you and your family. It's between you and your friends. It's between you and the community that you live in. It's also, and again I had to think about this, it's between you and the principalities of darkness and indeed the heavenly realms. Sim Oram, Joe Oram, wicked, sinful, corrupt, has stood before a holy God and satisfied his justice because they have been crucified with Christ. And baptism demonstrates to all, including the principalities and the powers of evil, the heavenly realms as well, that you have lost me. I am dead. I am buried. And the life I now live is a new life. It's the life of Jesus Christ in me. And that's why we're taken out of this world and our citizenship is placed in heaven because that's where we belong. My primary concern this morning is not have you been baptized, not as you've been baptized as a believer in the manner specified in Scripture, which is full immersion. My primary concern this morning is whether you are forgiven which is the only way into the Christian life. There's a lot more once you get in. But it all starts when you come to the cross and know that you have been forgiven and that you've been cleansed because Christ died for you and you've been united with him so you died in him. We shouldn't sin because we were buried. But if we do, we are continually forgiven. So please come along next to the next two messages which will talk about the, the next element of baptism. And on the third week we will talk about whether you should be baptized. And we'll talk about what this involves and what it means. So I hope and pray with all my heart that this message, which has to be about the gospel, explains that it's God's justice that saves us through mercy in His Son, Jesus Christ.